This is episode 43 of Cinescope, and you will always remember this as the day that you almost caught Captain Jack Sparrow. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Sarah Parrish to talk about one of our favorite films, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Sarah, how are you doing tonight? I am so good. I'm like, I'm probably a little too stoked to talk to you about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. I I appreciate enthusiasm. That's always a a plus on a show like this. (laughs) (laughs) I I love it so much. I actually just, to be honest, I just got off the phone with one of my best friends. She and I just figured out a couple uh, weeks ago, we went to Disney World together and we were in line for the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And she told me, she was like, you know, I don't know why, but I'm like a little embarrassed to say that like this movie is the reason I got into casting. You know, she like works in casting. Uh And I was like, dude, this is one of my favorite movies in the world. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And we're like, we're like best friends. It was crazy. That's awesome. So you're a Caribbean person rather than a Caribbean. I, yeah, (laughs) I think I think I switch back and forth, to be honest. I'm no way consistent. No, I know. It goes back and forth. It it depends on like who, you know, like the announcer voice guy, whoever's doing that. It's like it switches off. Some people just say it with Caribbean. I really don't know what's the correct version. But I remember I was raised before the movies learning like geography and saying Caribbean. So I just tend to say Caribbean. <laughs> it works for me. Yeah, whatever. Well, you and I have known each other for a few years at this point, I think. This is our first time talking uh, more or less face to face. I know it's it's weird. It's funny because I've um Lacey introduced us, our right. mutual theater friend. So I knew that you were into I don't know, I guess the arts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we just kind of follow each other on Twitter and on Facebook and all that stuff. But yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you, dude. It's 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 weird. Or like <laughs> internet friends. Yeah, uh, internet friends are the best. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you want to tell the people out there listening anything about yourself, what you do, any of that kind of stuff before we get started? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I, I grew up um, in theater, as we kind of said, and I had used to want to be an actress. It was like a childhood dream. And it started with uh, movies like this, Disney movies. And then uh, when I went to high school, I did theater and then college. I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew that wasn't really realistic. But uh, I ended up going to film school, which I guess is more realistic. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I had a lot of fun and I made a lot of great contacts. And I do think that that is something I am going to do with my future. And I sort of became a writer. And through friends of friends who I made in college, somehow I landed a software job, which is what I'm doing right now. I knew a little bit of coding. So I'm working in software right now and I'm just writing on the side. And I love movies. Awesome. Yeah. You know, writing, uh, creative writing is a talent I wish I had. So I'm kind of jealous that you you have that skill set. Oh, you know, I genuinely believe that anybody who is creative and who loves ideas, like you could do it, but it it does take work. Even every single day, it's I have to force myself to write. Honestly, you're never going to feel like writing. 
<laughs> it's, it's hard. It's a hard job. Yeah, it's a muscle you sort of have to flex to to improve. Yeah, and you know, along the way, like you're never really gonna love what you're writing until the last, like, I don't know, maybe draft number twenty. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's really, a, it's a miserable dream. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. You know, it's a learning process, like like any other kind of hobby and you know, passion. Right. As long as it's something you enjoy, I think that's what matters in the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Storytelling is just so fun, and it's something that we as a species, honestly, have done since the beginning of us. You know, at first it was oral tradition, and then it went on to to writing and to other formats, and now we have movies, which is fantastic, and it's something that I still want to get into. So, Well, hit me up whenever you do, and <laughs> I'm sure we can oh, find like music sure, or, or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I can look at the credits and say, hey, I know that person. And (laughs) she was on my podcast. (laughs) I noticed at least via Twitter, we tend to agree on most things. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. We do. for sure. Well, cool. I I guess that sort of brings us to our discussion. Are you ready? Oh, I'm so ready. I've honestly been like rewatching some stuff from this movie because it's my favorite movie, really. It's what got me into like creative writing genuinely. Uh So excited to talk about it with you. That's awesome. And that's what the show's all about, is talking about the movies we love and why. So yeah. let's dive in to Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. So the movie was released on July 29th of 2003 and was directed by Gore Verbinski, who also directed Mouse Hunt, The Mexican, The Ring, The Weatherman, the other two Pirates of the Caribbean movies in this trilogy, Dead Man's Chest and At World's End, as well as Rango, The Lone Ranger, and A Cure for Wellness. The movie was written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, and it was based on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride by Walt Disney at Disneyland. The music was composed by Klaus Badelt, who also composed scores for Equilibrium, K-19, The Widowmaker, The Time Machine, Basic, Catwoman, The Promise, Constantine, Poseidon, Rescue Dawn, and the animated TMNT movie. And this movie does star Johnny Depp, Orlando Bloom, Kira Knightley, Jeffrey Rush, Jack Davenport, Kevin McNally, Jonathan Price, Zoe Saldana, Lee Ehrenberg, and Mackenzie Crook. So you've already given us a little bit of background. Do you remember anything about your first experience seeing this movie? Oh, yeah. Actually, when I first saw it, it kind of scared me a little. I was, I can't really remember how old I was. I must have been like, when did it come out? 2003? So I was... I was, I remember I was too young to see it. This was Disney's first PG-13 movie, you know, and my parents kind of let me see it anyways. And I went with my, um, my older brother and also my dad and whatever, my brother had already seen the movie. And so he kind of knew which parts or he was like, Hey, uh, duck behind the seats. You don't want to see this part. <laughs> and so I kind of like dip my head. And it was of course when the, when the pirates would come out and they were in like their zombie kind of form. But yeah, I remember though, just thinking Elizabeth was like the most beautiful, cool, like awesome character. And then Jack was just hilarious. Even as a kid, I thought he was so funny. And yeah, I mean, that was my first experience was in the theater. And then I watched it again and again when it came on demand, because that was sort of starting to become a thing back then. It wasn't like fully a thing, but when we all got cable, we could order movies on demand. And I remember that was like one of the first movies that we were really like watching because I loved it so much. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these movies that I watched when I was a kid, I don't remember my first experience with it, but this one, I actually do remember the first time I watched it. We were 
on a family vacation in Destin, Florida, I believe. And we were on this little rented condo on the beach or something like that. And it was storming. And so we decided we were going to watch a movie as a family, the 10 of us in our condo that night. Oh my God. And I guess Pirates was a popular choice. And so we went out and bought it on DVD. I didn't see it in theaters. We bought it on DVD and we all sat in the little living room or uh, living area of this condo. And we watched Pirates of the Caribbean together for the first time. And I don't remember a lot of specifics of the actual viewing experience. I just remember the when and the where. But I do remember laughing a lot, I think, mostly because of Jack. And overall, I remember liking it. That's the only like first experience uh, memories that I have of watching this movie. Yeah, it's kind of hard to think back to these movies that you first saw when you were really young because it is, you know, your memories get worse and worse as you go on. And I just like recalculated it in my head. 2003, I would have been in third grade. So I was like eight years old. And yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty young to, to remember like how we felt. <laughs> But I remember rewatching it as I got older over and over again, and it, it just felt like it got better and better, you know, the more I understood story and character and I was old enough to not be as scared. <laughs> it got like better for me. Yeah, I was never one of the people who didn't care for the sequels. You know, oh, a lot of people either. don't like the second and third because they're so convoluted. And then especially on Stranger Tides, people don't love them. I, I like all of them, at least in their own ways. But I don't think it's hard to argue that this one is definitely the best of the bunch. Yeah. And uh, it, I, I saw the second and third one in theaters later. Uh, and it was all because the first experience with this one was so good. I enjoyed it so much. I think I saw all of them in theaters uh, from then on as well. Uh, the first one, I just got lucky. You know, I was just a kid. I didn't choose to go. But um, <laughs> the other ones, yeah, I, I definitely um, was down to see it when they opened. Uh, I, I'm the same. I really liked all the sequels. I mean, on Stranger Tides, I guess I have a few qualms. But overall, they're they're pretty good. <laughs> like, they're made really well. And the writers dedicated a lot of time to making sure that it, it it doesn't drag. It keeps you going and they keep adding new things. Right. I especially love the complexity of the plot line from the second to the yes. third. I, I just think that's a really cool through line. Oh, and too. so it's always fun to revisit those. In fact, I'll probably be rewatching those over this weekend before I, I go see the fourth or the fifth one. Yeah, because the new one came out. I still haven't seen it yet. So my best friend, the one I told you about, or one of my best friends, she just saw the fifth one tonight and she texted me and she was like, Hey, listen, I know you're doing that podcast and I don't want to text you any spoilers, but holy shit, you got to go see it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm stoked. We should definitely see it. Where are you again? Also, where Dallas. do you live? I never, you're in Dallas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we can't see it together, but that's okay. We could still text. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, what exactly in this story draws you in? What do you like about the, the, the happenings going on in this movie? Uh, well, it's, it's all like just personal preference. I'm super into fantasy. I'm, I'm mostly into high fantasy. Like I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan and stuff like that. But I also, for some reason, pirates draws me in. I don't know what it is. Like it's, it's the adventure and like the kind of rebelliousness and all that stuff. It's just a really good combination. And you know, it started with uh, Jay Wolpert. He he was the one who, like, adapted the ride from Disneyland, right? Like, at first it was just a ride, and he, he made that script. And then later, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, they were the ones who added the supernatural element, and that's what made it sort of magical. And just, like, who would have thought that, like, that combination would be so perfect? Like, I just think it's just such a good 
blend of fantasy and kind of history in a way, you know, like these pirates and mutiny. And at the same time, you have like Commodore Norrington and like the royalty aspect of it. It's just, I just think it's a good combination of these elements. And then on top of that, just the story is structurally brilliant. Like they just did it really well. And it started with the writing. The writing is just on point. That's why it's so funny. I think they were writing it for, it was either Hugh Jackman or Matthew McConaughey. But when they auditioned Johnny Depp, he read it and he was like, this is like super quirky. Like, I don't know. I think this is kind of goofy. And then, you know, he did that whole like Keith Richards thing that was like his inspiration, right? For like the character. And he was like, I want to make this guy kind of like cocky and almost drunk. And then just that element that he brought to it kind of juxtaposed the whole proper Britishness that was going on with the rest of the movie. And it like just brings it down to an almost meta level for me. I don't know. It just, that's why it's so funny at parts is because like, okay, you remember that part where like, they're, they're about to go after Elizabeth and he turns to Will and he's like, what would you do for this woman? Like, how far are you prepared to go? And he's like, I would die for her. And he's like, oh, good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just that that realness that that meets the the proper sort of attitude. It's It's just perfect. I don't know. It's just a really great script. I completely agree. What's funny <laughs> is that, you know, there was this weird sort of expectation for a movie like this. There was a stigma with these theme park attraction movies a year previous to this one i think there was the country bears movie that completely tanked and they had done the twilight zone which i actually kind of like that one but there, <laughs> there was a stigma to these uh movie theme park attraction movies what what story can you tell with pirates of the caribbean so it was predicted to not make any money and then this explodes it's just so much better than you'd expect it to be it's I think people feared that it would be too silly at the get-go just because of the, the antics and the ride. But from the very first shot of the film where you have the, the, the ship coming out of the fog and oh, you have little yeah. Elizabeth Swan singing Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, Pirate's Life for Me and there's fog <laughs> everywhere. And then all of a sudden, Will is in the water and then, uh-oh, there's this burning, destroyed ship. And then not long after, Elizabeth sees the Black Pearl. And it's just all this real creepy, dark tone at the very start of the film. There's no comedy there at all. And so the whole film, I think they do a fantastic job of balancing the the scary and the, the off-putting nature of a lot of it with the goofier elements of Jack Sparrow. He really is the foil for the, the more serious aspects of the film. And that balance is towed so wonderfully in this movie that you can be scared at one point and in the next scene you're laughing just because Johnny Depp's being ridiculous in a great way. And I, I love that it sort of defeated the expectations set upon it and the, the expected failures by just being something at the same time completely serious but also completely fun. It's like it takes itself just seriously enough and it knows when to step back and it knows when to have that comedic relief and it just the whole thing just feels appropriate. Yeah. I'm so glad also that this movie got a good budget because like just the scenes and the costumes and like they, they fully dedicated themselves to this world and it could have been totally goofy, but they just, I don't know, they knew what to do. But I mean like, you know, Terry and Ted, they were the guys that did like El Dorado and Shrek and I think they did Aladdin. They did a bunch of like movies before for DreamWorks at Disney and they're just great writers and I think that the writing had a lot to do with it. And then I know Verbinski's a great visual storyteller. He's proved himself, obviously. <laughs> and it was just a really good combination of cast, crew, everything just fell into place. 
Yeah, it's kind of good that it was competing against Lord of the Rings at the time. This came right before Return of the King came out. Yeah. And so Verbinski was like, yeah, we need a budget this big because look at what our competition is. And yeah, uh, it really worked out for the better. And there's like great location shooting, these giant ship battles, these sword fights. All of it is just so cool and a treat to look at. I think this is some of the best sword fighting outside of the Inigo Montoya and Wesley fight in Princess oh Bride, right? Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you referenced that. <laughs> no, but seriously, they dedicated a lot of time. They were like, we're going to train these actors. And, and they I think they used stunt doubles, of, of course, a few times. But for the most part, they were really spending a lot of time on just making this look as real and as good as possible. And, you know, once again, this was their first PG-13 movie for Disney, I think. And they were just fully dedicated to making it as real as possible while still being playful. Yeah, and I think, yeah, the fight scenes had a lot to do with that and, like, just the explosions and, yeah, they needed that budget and that competition. It pushed it to a supreme level that I'm so glad it reached. Oh, I love this movie! <laughs> <laughs> and rewatching it today, I was actually pretty impressed with how well the special effects held up because it's 14 years old at this point, and I wouldn't say they're up to the same standards as they are today, but it works for this film, and it is as real and holds up as well as it needs to for this film to just be as visually stunning as it is the the zombie pirates as i call them <laughs> they're genuinely scary the first time they're revealed properly when elizabeth is on the black pearl with barbosa and she steps out and they're they're washing the deck and they're, they're doing completely normal yeah. things but just it's, it's the first time we've seen them and they're terrifying yeah that's actually my favorite scene of the entire movie oh really and yeah i mean just for multiple reasons, like because of that, especially, but okay, that scene, I know Elizabeth was established as a strong character in the beginning. And a lot of times I think extroverts can come off as mean and that's not always the case. You know what I mean? Like I think a lot of writers write introverts because writers tend to be introverts <laughs> and, and those characters are kind and they're kind of shy. Elizabeth is like a strong woman. Like she, she's just like, <laughs> You know, I, I'm the governor's daughter. She has all this wealth and privilege, but she's not in love with Commodore Norrington, and she knows it. And that scene where she's on the pirate ship for the first time, well, really when they come into her bedroom and they're, like, attacking her, and she says, I want to talk to your captain. To me, that all the way until the pirate fight is, like, one of my all-time favorite scenes. She is just, like, established as this character who's not going to take shit and who is just down for adventure. <laughs> it's just like so good. Like she's just like brought onto the ship and they're like, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to introduce you to the captain. Sure, why not? And she has that necklace and she knows it means something to him. And when she like holds it over the edge and she just tests him right in front of their faces, right in front of all these dudes with swords in their hands. And then she like almost drops it into the water, but she catches it and she's like, oh, this does mean something to you, doesn't it? I think that is such a great establishment of character. Like, I could go on and on. And they set that up in the, the prologue where she's fascinated with pirates at an early age. She's yeah. the, these mysterious people who are so stigmatized by society. She's standing on the bow of the ship singing Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho. She says straight up that she'd love to meet a pirate. I, I think they're fascinating. Mm -hmm. And yep. she, she steals the medallion off of Will and... We learn later that she's apparently been reading up on them and knows the pirate code and all this kind of stuff. It, it's set up from the very beginning. 
And this interest sort of proves useful on more than one occasion throughout the film where she, she brings that knowledge to the forefront and takes control of situations like the scene you were talking about with her almost dropping the medallion and other scenes where everybody else on the Pearl uh, has given up. All of Jack's crew has given up and she takes control and says, no, let's do this. Let's load the cannons. Let's prepare to fight back. And it's because she has grown up yearning for this sort of adventure. Whereas Will has sort of tried to step aside from the pirate life. He and everybody else think that pirates are these big evil people and all they do is rape and pillage and kill. And Elizabeth sees past it just a little bit. She sees the adventure of it and she is setting out on her own adventure. She is in control of so many situations in this movie. Yeah, when she's a kid and she's like, oh, I think it'd be rather fascinating to meet a pirate. Actually, (laughs) it's pretty hilarious. (laughs) The governor's reaction, it feels like throughout most of the movie, he's just like, oh, please don't. Please, (laughs) please don't be into that kind of stuff. (laughs) I bought you a dress. (laughs) Please wear it. And then, of course, that dress ends up suffocating her and she has to take it off. What else about Elizabeth, if anything, do you have to say? You know, I know we're just talking about the first movie, but her her transition throughout the films as it continues on is is a thing that I admire as well. I mean, you know, that's something that I personally just pay attention to in movies. I really like strong female leads. It gets me real excited. I mean, I'm a female, so, you know, (laughs) but um, (laughs) it's not even just that she's a strong female. I think that a lot of times, like I said before, when you have like a strong extroverted lead character, it can be kind of irritating because sometimes it's a habit for people to make them kind of mean. And I just don't see that in her. Like she's kind throughout the, the entire series. And and there's even a point I think, and I don't know if it's this movie or dead men's chest, but she's talking to Jack and she asks him, I think it's actually dead men's chest. She's like, what do you think it would be like if you were a good guy? And in a way she's really, you know, she's smart and she's manipulating him, but there's also just that touch of, Anybody can be good. And I, I, I love that in a character. I mean, that's just such a classic fairy tale trope, but it, it's great every time. I'm into it. <laughs> she and Will both are so dedicated to doing the right thing. Yeah, Will. Oh, Will. I love him too. Speaking of Will, let, let's talk about Will just a little bit. So what do you have to say about Orlando Bloom's Will? I think he's kind of, like, he's hilarious. Like, you know, back to that scene where, like, he and Jack are talking about saving Elizabeth. And he's just like, I die for her. <laughs> he's, like, dedicated to the point to where it's, like, kind of funny and he's a little bit of a goof. But it, it's just the right amount, you know? Like, he's he's a genuine, genuinely loves her. And what I like about this movie is that, like, even though it's kind of like a love at first sight fantasy trope, as they go on throughout the adventure, they they for real fall in love. You know what I mean? Like, because you could see, like, at the beginning, it's like, oh, really? Like, you think that she's pretty sure, but you guys never talk. Like, you've known each other since you're 11, but you don't hang out. Like, how could you really love this person? But as they go on and, like, he saves her and they get to know each other more, it becomes really, really genuine. And I, I really like that element of the story. But Will himself... He's just a genuine, like, golden boy. He's a Prince Charming. But, like, it's real. It comes from within. And it shows with, like, how he deals with that torment when Jack is like, hey, your dad's a pirate. Hate to break it to you, but that's the way it is. And, oh, it's you watch him go through it because he is one of those guys, like you said, that just thinks that pirates are scummy and dark. And he's like, no way that's in my blood. And then, sure enough, he uses it to his advantage. It's just fantastic. Yeah, he's introduced at the start of the film as a gifted but unappreciated craftsman. And 
he's also sort of naive and even a little bit clumsy. He, he goes <laughs> into these situations expecting one thing when the reality is completely opposite. He decides to fight Jack to prevent him from escaping, but he expected it to be an honorable sword fight. And yeah. <laughs> at the end, D Jack throws the dirt in his face. He says, oh, you cheated. <laughs> and it, it, it's just funny that he has that naivety to him where he, he goes into heartbreak. <laughs> right. You he goes into these situations expecting one thing and just gets com something completely different. Or like when he has helped Jack to escape from the prison on Port Royal and they are taking over the Dauntless so then they can get onto the Interceptor. <laughs> Jack says we're taking control of the ship and he goes oh yeah vast or whatever he, he like this this standard stereotypical pirate slang because he only knows the stereotypes and that's something that he has to learn over the course of the film is what does being a pirate actually mean and he learns that through jack yeah that was a perfect moment of comedic relief too <laughs> just oi avast and he's like please don't <laughs> for the love of god <laughs> yeah, and it, it's great that Orlando Bloom got a chance to shine. This was one of his first film roles. I mean, he had been in the first two Lord of the Rings at this point, but Legolas, for a lot of those movies, just sort of stands to the side and gives us uh, exposition. Yeah. Um. So this was his chance to really stand out as a leading man and a character or a person who can carry a movie. And I think he does a great job with it in this film and the next two. And it's great that he gets the chance to show off his acting chops. And he really does have that great chemistry with Kira Knightley's character where the first time we see them as adults, we can tell they've got sort of something going on between each other, but it takes the course of the film for them to really show and to prove their love for each other. He proves it the moment that he helps Jack escape after she has been kidnapped. And then she proves it later when she goes into the cave by herself to help prevent him dying. And at the end, when he finally confesses his love, finally, then they're, they're finally able to reciprocate and, have a chance together so it's like this back and forth to a certain extent it, i mean it's funny now to think like years later it's like that was yeah orlando bloom wasn't a thing <laughs> now he's like totally a thing i can't imagine what jack sparrow would have been like if they casted hugh jackman i mean they originally wrote the role for hugh jackman they say i don't know if it's true but they say that like that's the reason they called him jack sparrow it's kind of like a wink over to Hugh Jackman. But like Hugh Jackman wasn't famous enough back then. Like he was just an Australian dude. Like he was famous in, in his country, but he wasn't famous to the United States yet. But I'm just so glad that they went with Johnny Depp and Orlando Bloom. <laughs> it was it ended up being really good. Agreed. Well let's talk about Johnny Depp and Jack just a little bit more. This was something completely different. And this was really what put Johnny Depp on the map because he'd done like indie films before this one. And this was his first big role. So anything else to say about Jack Sparrow? There's so much to say like this is and once again, this is what me and um, one of my friends, her name is Christine. This is what really got her into casting because the process was just so interesting. They were looking for something totally different. They had written this character. They knew they wanted him to be cocky and, um, you know, just a really brave, very brass pirate. But they had no idea that what they were going to get was like this almost drunk kind of character based off of like, I don't know, like 80s rock stars, I think. And and of course, the irony that he he claimed to base it off of Keith Richards, and then Keith Richards came back and, and played the Pirate King later on. But I just I just love that story. Like he came in, he saw the script, he was like, this is a little goofy, I'm just gonna run with it. And they loved it. And uh, truthfully, the the introduction of Jack Sparrow 
in those first few scenes is one of the greatest ever. I mean, I know I'm a huge fan of this movie, but hear me out. Like, this is <laughs> really good. It's like a great introduction to a character. You know, the first time you like really see him, he's on a ship. He he's like riding past these uh, pirate skeletons that have been hanged. He salutes them, and then you see him like his hair riding in the wind, and it looks like he's on top of his ship. And then you see the ship is sinking. It's like almost <laughs> right. completely. Sunk. He's got this and big then... majestic uh, musical theme going along with him. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. And then you know you, you'll you'll never forget the day you almost caught Captain Jack Sparrow. I mean, it's it's fantastic. I don't know what else. To say. <laughs> well, he's got. You're right. He's got this cockiness about them, but he's also got this determination that he can basically accomplish anything he sets out on. He he always has a solution for each scenario that he comes across. And what's funny about it is that even though he doesn't always know if it'll work, it's almost like it's always improvised. Every time you see him, like hit this lever and grab the rope to launch him across the the ship it, you, you see i have no idea if I, this is going to work or not but i'm going to do it anyways and i think that's referenced <laughs> yeah. later in the series uh well in this movie he says something about how these these crazy thoughts sometimes intersect with the the genius so every time he has a crazy thought he just acts on it in hopes that it's genius and what's funny is most of the time it is you know, that's another thing that I, I'm so glad you said that. That's another thing I love about him. You can see, like, his genius throughout the craziness as he goes on. Like, that beginning scene whenever he's in Will's shop and he looks around at what's going on and, like, the donkey is sitting there and he sees, like, the hot coals and, like, he, he takes that tool and sort of, like, makes the donkey, he kind of like burns the donkey into where it starts to run around and, and set off that contraption. And he sees that that's a way to like break the chains that are holding him captive. It's like, who, who would have thought of that? Like he's, <laughs> and it's because he's a pirate. Like he has this experience that people look down upon, but it's, it's made him really creative. And I love that that's like kind of a, a good juxtaposition between him and Will. He's always telling Will, like, please don't do something stupid for the love of God. But he's doing crazy shit all the time. But it's because he knows what he's doing. Like, he has that skill to improvise. That's a good point. They, they're they like polar opposites. Will is very methodical and meticulous, and that's how he's such a gr good swordsman and craftsman uh, when it comes to creating these works of art, like Norrington's sword. And Jack is impulsive but a lot of his impulsiveness is led by intuition. And so over the course of the film, you see Jack sort of developing this meticulous plan. And that, that comes to a head at the end of the film when he's hinting towards will that, you know, you need to end the curse at the right time at the, at the opportune moment. And will has to learn to act impulsively every once in a while. So they, they feed off of each other in a great way. Yeah. It lends especially to the third act. You're right. It's it's when you see that arc finally come to a close and, and Will is willing to get on that level with him. And it's also fun to see or to guess what side Jack is playing for in this movie and in the sequels. You never really know. He He's definitely in it for the self-interest of it all. He, he He's in it for him. But along the way, he has this sort of heart of gold aspect to his character where, you know, I'm going to do me. But along the way, I'll, I'll do you and you as well, you know, just because it, it, it benefits me in the long run. And he's a fun character. He's not an anti-hero per se. He's not a good guy or bad guy. He's just there and he's reacting. And along the way, he does some good things. He does some bad things. I was going to say that too. It's, it's <laughs> for real. It's, it's that great combination of just, yeah, he's in it for number one. But then he has that moment where he's just like, hey, can I really leave these people behind? Nah, I'm just going to go ahead and. 
I'm going to go ahead and save him. Now, what about Barbosa? Oh, Barbosa. That's a fun, that's a great character. I think he has a little bit of that too. It's just, a, it, it, of course, presents itself in a different way. Uh, Barbosa, I do think, is more out for number one. He more stands out to me, of course, in uh, the following movies his, as he makes a comeback and as his story develops more. In this first one, though, I, I think he's really just a perfect villain. You know, he's that speech that he gives to Elizabeth when he's a zombie and he's just like, I, I feel nothing. Like, I, I need to get this feeling back. I need to be human again. And I'm lost for words. You got to help me out here. Well, <laughs> I think aside from... Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow, Jeffrey Rush's Barbosa is like the perfect pirate character. If I picture a pirate in my head now, yeah, Barbosa is like the first figure I, I go to because he he's just this crazy pirate guy. And I, I don't question it at all. <laughs> there's 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 even these moments where he's just like chasing Elizabeth and he just screams. Rah! And he does the same thing when he's fighting uh, Jack Sparrow at the end of the film. Yeah. He just sort of like screams and make these vague pirate sounds, I guess is the best way to describe them. And it, it just works. He he fits into the the role so well oh, seriously and i know okay i know this is kind of a sidestep but like the costume and makeup especially for him and just i mean everyone else of course but it's perfect i remember watching behind the scenes when i was younger and they have like these these contact lenses that they would give some of the pirates and they would like make the whites of your eyes yellow and i just remember seeing him put it in and it's like as soon as he put those in his eyes he just transformed into this crazy ass character and i was like this is perfect oh just this grotesque like compelling real villainous but at the same time just a freaking goof they're just out to sail the seas <laughs> that's why like you admire it when you're a kid you're just like ah i just want to i just want to go crazy and have adventure and it's like you don't realize that there's real darkness in these characters like they're probably killing people wherever they go you know let's be honest now that I think of it, I think this is the first film I ever saw Jeffrey Rush in, and it definitely made an impression. He's a fantastic actor, but this is sort of the role that I always associate him with. And what's funny is he's not a good guy or like a good dude at all in this movie. He, there's there's lots of people who get killed in this movie, uh, more so than in the sequels, I think. Um, but what's funny is that he still manages to be somewhat sympathetic in my eyes. There's the ending scene in particular, right when Jack has shot him in the heart and will has ended the, the curse. And he goes, I feel, and there's this moment of relief where, wow, for the first time in years, I feel. And then he says cold and then he yeah. dies. And that, that's oh. so sad. I, that, that, that makes me tear up every time I watch it. I, I was doing some music research a couple of days ago for something uh, semi-related that I'll mention later. And I just watched that scene on YouTube. And it, it made me tear up then, just isolated on its own. It, it's just, Jeffrey Rush is so powerful. And that scene makes him sympathetic. And there's an earlier scene, the, the scene you were talking about, where Elizabeth is eating dinner with him on the Black Pearl. And he's just like enviously watching her eat and getting almost like a pleasure from imagining doing the same. Exactly. And you, you you feel for him a little bit. You can I can imagine going eight years, ten years, or I can't imagine actually going that long without drinking something <laughs> or being thirsty and not being able to to slake I it. I can't that even imagine a day. I go nuts if I don't have lunch. This guy's going for ten years, and he, <laughs> and he even says he's like I I've never felt. The, the touch of a woman's flesh it's like man and and a lot of 
times, you know what I really like about this too, is that it, that's the way that they do it. A lot of times movies do it with like flashbacks. They give you like the backstory of these villains and that's the way that they gain sympathy for you. You know, you're like, oh, they had a hard childhood. But in this movie, I feel like they do it along the way and they do it in a smart way to where like you just see his motivations and you have just the right amount of sympathy, but not too much, you know? He's a character missing out on basic humanity. I mean, that's that's tough to imagine. Yeah, for sure. Now, if we wanted to talk briefly about these other characters, I had Gibbs written down. Oh, Gibbs! I, I had a question about Gibbs. You know, he's in that opening prologue, and he's with Norrington and the governor, and he's like part of the, the Royal Navy or whatever their title is. And he's just as suspicious as a pirate would be. He, he's exhibiting <laughs> those behaviors early on. But then the next time we see him, he's sleeping with pigs in Tortuga and he and Jack are best friends. So it just makes me wonder sort of what happened in his life to, to get him from point A to point B. Yeah, well, he's a perfect example. You know, back in back in the day, pirates, the way they typically became pirates is that they were merchant sailors, just like Will Turner was saying his dad was. He's like, no, he was a merchant sailor. But a lot of times it just wasn't enough. And they found out that they can make more money or, you know, this benefit or that benefit by becoming a pirate. And I think that that's probably just what happened to Mr. Gibbs. Like he was he found his crew. <laughs> Honestly, he found the right people. Uh, I, I I mean, I love Mr. Gibbs. Like he's uh, another thing, though, and I know this is kind of a sidestep, but he was like one of the original characters on the ride at Disneyland. And uh, he's he's sleeping with the pigs. That's like his his form. And he's still there. And they built him in Orlando as well. Uh, it, it's it's funny to. Yeah, you're right. See that character go from working underneath Commodore Norton to be. This he seems desperate, but I just get the sense that he chose that life. Like it was, it was the pirate's life for him, so to speak, (laughs) (laughs) from day one. He was always meant to do that. But what I love about Mr. Gibbs, though, is that it's funny because he seems like the type also that is like thrilled about the pirate life. He's he's down. He's he's always like I matey. Like he says the stereotypical <laughs> things. He's that one character that gives you like that satisfaction. Where he's like in, in the second movie how he starts off with like singing those pirate songs. It's just uh yeah. <laughs> he's he's the stereotype relief for me. And he's such a great first mate and friend to Jack, and he basically follows him blindly. Uh, I, oh, I just yeah. love that he's, he's always there for him. Smee, you know, for Captain Hook, he's he's totally a me. Like yeah. he's he's the right hand man. Oh, I never thought about that until just now. Yeah, and it, it says something about Mr. Gibbs' character that he's he's still around in the Pirates films. You know, he's one of the three characters that we've had in all five films up to this point. So I, that's pretty cool. It's true. That is pretty cool. Now, what about Norrington? Oh, Commodore Norrington. Oh man, I got a lot of feelings about that guy. I feel bad for him, but like at the same time, he's kind of like. Oh. Yeah, I got a lot of feelings. It's also one of those things where I I think of movies kind of in in sort of a socio-critical way, like I uh, or societal rather. It, he's like way older than Elizabeth. <laughs> I know he's at this viewing too. I, like he was there when she was a kid. <laughs> She's like ten years old, and I know that that was just a part of the times. But um, you know, it, it's one of those things where you always know, like this guy's not right for her. He's way too old. He can't relate. He's very, uh, he's on the straight and narrow 100%. 
And it's like, it's different than Will in that, I don't know, he has more power. Maybe that's the difference is that like Will is this lowly kind of lower on the, the, the chain in society and Commodore Norrington just has like all this power and he keeps getting exalted and he keeps getting praised and sure he's, he's a good guy, but at, at the end of the day, he doesn't have this empathy that I'm searching for. Like he doesn't have this being able to see into the eyes of even a pirate, which is something that Will and Elizabeth both have and, and Will hates pirates and he could still manage to work with Jack. Like, Commodore Norrington, it takes him forever to get to that level. And he only does it when he absolutely has to, which I don't even think is in the first movie. In the first movie, he had to have his heart broken before he even was sympathetic. Like, it was that part at the end where Elizabeth declares her love for Will. And and that's, like, the only part where you see, like, his heart break and he's like, fine, I'll give you a start. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I, I do think in that just a couple minutes earlier to that, when Jack was getting ready to be hung from the gallows, and they were reading off all of his crimes or whatever. I think Norrington was a little bit hesitant. He's like, you know, yeah, he's a pirate, but he did save Elizabeth. He did get rid of Barbosa and this this devilish crew. But you're right, it does take him a lot longer than it does the other characters to get to that point. He he's this good man who's bound to the law. And he he's more interested in following the the law than maybe what the right thing to do is. And so you're right, when the when the opportunity comes around, he he does take the advantage of the opportunity to sort of look the other way while Jack ex- escapes, but he doesn't really do it of his own free will. But I do think he has a talent to sort of see people for who they are by the end of the film. He lets Jack escape because, you know, maybe he's a pirate, but yeah, he's also a good guy. He he lets Will stay free because Elizabeth sees something in him and I see something in him. He's a, he's a gifted craftsman. He's he's somebody who's dedicated and passionate in his work. And so I, I, I like him for that. And then when Elizabeth confesses her love for Will instead of him, he says, okay, I, I understand. And he doesn't really fight it. He, he's a good guy and he sees people as they are, I think. You know, that's something that I think has changed as I've become older is now I sort of see all of that in him. I remember when I was younger, he just irritated the shit out of me. And now I'm just like, (laughs) now I'm just like, oh, you know, he's I I feel more sorry for him than anything when I watch the film. And yeah, you're right. At the end, his arc kind of comes to comes to a close in a really nice way. In, In a way we all would have predicted, but yeah, most of the time he's just that character that I'm like, come on, man, come on, like just, just give, give, just come on, give him a break. <laughs> <laughs> he's very, like you said, bound to the law. But um, yeah, as I've gotten older, you can see that empathy within him, and he, he's a good guy. I just wish that he would just <laughs> get on that level a little sooner, but then we wouldn't have drama, which makes a movie. <laughs> right. And he does get more sympathetic in the sequels, I think, when basically all of his titles and everything are stripped away from him. Uh, I remember that part in uh, Dead Man's Chest. You see him without his wig for the first time. It's like, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> the last character I really have anything to say about is the governor, Governor Swan. And you know, he, he, he gets his own piece of action with the, this this dismembered hand at the end of fight. Uh, and he's wrestling with that. And w- what I love most about that is after he's locked in the drawer and uh, everything quiets down, he, he goes out and he joins the celebration like he did anything <laughs> significant. Uh, yeah. But my favorite scene, my favorite scene with him is before Elizabeth climbs out of the window of the Dauntless to go 
uh, rescue Will, essentially. And he's trying to have a conversation with her through the door. She has accepted the Commodore's proposal at this point in order to entice him to follow Will and help to rescue him. And he says, you know, I'm proud of you for making this decision, but sometimes even a good decision can be the wrong one if made for the wrong reasons. He he wants his daughter to be happy in that moment. I think that is that is the best part of that character in this movie is, yes, it would be a fantastic thing for his daughter to be married to this Commodore, but would she be happy? He doesn't know. And so he wants to make sure that she's happy first. And that is awesome. I know. I'm so glad you brought that up. That part is, that is like the, the sweetest, especially, you know, throughout the whole movie, like, well, where is the mom? It's one of those Disney things. There's always a mom or dad missing. Always. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like, it, oh, it's so brilliant. I, I love multiple things about him. Uh, you know, the fact that like, he's, uh, I love that they take this like supposedly powerful leader that he is and kind of making him into a little bit of a goof. He's almost like the Sultan <laughs> from Aladdin to a certain extent. Yes. Like, like <laughs> you can't, you can't like super take him seriously, but at the same time, like he's, he's lovable. He has good intentions. And yeah, I think if it weren't for that part, it really sells it for me where he, at the end of the day, he wants her to be happy. He could have so easily been like, I'm, Oh yeah, I'm I'm proud of you. You've done a good de- you've done a good choice. What she was doing the rest of the movie, but finally when she does make that decision, he's like, "Wait, hang on. I know you. You're you're my kid." And yeah, that's just such a sweet moment for me. I also just love when characters of power are sort of treated that way. I don't know why. I think it's just cuz a lot of times you see this like poor versus rich and there's this assumption of like great bureaucratic control and then when you see it just with this guy that's just kind of going along and like delegating <laughs> it has another element of fun it's like Jack Sparrow's character right and then in the the last moments of the character with uh Will and Elizabeth they finally reciprocated their love and he says are you sure this is the right decision? You know, he is a blacksmith after all. She goes, no, he's a pirate. And he, he doesn't, he doesn't reject it. He, he's like, okay, okay, I'll give this to you. And he's accepting of his daughter and her choices in the end of the film. So he, he, he is a good father in the end. Yeah. <laughs> that part is pretty hilarious. <laughs> like if you zoom out and look at the whole thing, it's like, oh my God, <laughs> my daughter loves a pirate. <laughs> yeah, took that one really well, dad. And then the only other characters I, I really wanted to mention, uh, you might have a couple more, but you have the the two duos. There's Pintel and Rigetti, played by Lee Ehrenberg and Mackenzie Crook, uh, the, the pirate with the wooden eye and the hello poppet guy. And then there's Murtog, played by Giles New, and Mulroy, played by Angus Barnett, who are the the two British officers who originally stand up to Jack as he's approaching the Dauntless. And uh, it's those two duos, and there's the additional comic relief, aside from Jack. And they both have scenes where they stand out, and I think they both return in future films to continue the hilarity. I I just wanted to give them a shout-out because they're funny characters. Oh, yeah, buddy. And that's I'm so glad you brought that up. That is another product of great casting. Those, separately, their dynamics are just fantastic. You know, the, the pirates... I mean, the wooden eye is also a great comic relief, but just the the characters themselves, yeah, they bring a really great element to to the whole thing. You always have those 
the, those pirates on board, you know, everybody else is really serious and scary. And then you just have these two dudes. They're just, it kind of feels like they're just along for the ride <laughs> in a way. Like his eyeball keeps popping out. The other one, he just can't, they just can't catch a break. That part where they, they go up to her and they're like, oh, you could dine with the captain or you could dine with us and you'll be naked. And she's like, I'm going to go with the captain. <laughs> right. Thanks. And he goes, <laughs> and he goes fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fine. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're great. And oh, yeah, you're right. Whenever uh, Jack is, so he goes up to them and then they have that conversation and then they just end up going off onto their own tangent and like talking about like, You've never seen the Black Pearl. Yes, I have. No, you have not. Have you seen? <laughs> Describe it. You know. Yeah, that's great. Those are great characters. Any other characters you want to mention or shout out, or are we ready to move on? I just think the whole thing is uh, the casting was just well planned, even down to just the background you know, characters. You know, there's this one. Um, oh man, I really wish I could remember his name but he doesn't really have a name in the movie he's just uh what one of the pirates under barbosa he has this moment where he really brings you into their situation and he says you know nothing of hell oh yeah i think that's uh they're storming port royal because elizabeth fell in the water and the medallion calls out and they go down into jack's cell because he's been captured and is in the cell and Jack yes. is confronting. They're 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 having this confrontation. First time they've seen each other, and he says that line to to Jack specifically. You know nothing of hell, and that's when he he grabs him by the neck and you the, the moonlight shines. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, that's a good part. <laughs> I'm really into that part. <laughs> but really, it's it's like he's a really good actor too. I mean, I know that's like his one kind of claim to fame in, in that whole movie. But like, you can feel the sincerity where he's like, I've been dealing with this shit. Oh, God, that was such a great introduction to the supernatural element of the film. I didn't even think about that. But that's like one of the that's like the first moment. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, that's the first time you know something's up and Jack says, Oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah, man, just the whole thing. It's really great. And uh, was her name Ana Maria? Yeah, uh, the early Zoe Saldana role. Yes, 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 yes. Zoe Saldana. Oh, I love her. Yeah, she's a great character, too. They had a lot of fun with her. <laughs> and uh that's where you show they, they see will kind of taking a stand for the first time you know where he's he points to the ship and he's like oh we'll make a deal with you we'll give you that ship and then jack is like what wait we're gonna give her no this is our ship and he's like nope we're gonna do it yeah she's a great character too that's another really like strong kind of almost irritating but not quite character you know real extrovert really likes to take the reins and then in the end becomes extremely useful yeah, I mean, there, there's all these bit parts in the crew that don't necessarily have big speaking parts or these big scenes, but there's the the guy in Barbosa's crew with the bombs that we see at the very beginning when they're storming Port Royal, and then here we see him in the end fight, and Will and Elizabeth trick him by putting the bomb in his skeleton and then pushing him into the or out of the moonlight. Uh, oh, so we, we see that character yeah. occurring throughout the film. We see the character you were talking about who says, "You know nothing of hell." Then there's the guy with like the the subdermal piercings or whatever all all over his face and his neck and stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, who's like yeah. the, uh, I think it's Barbosa's first mate. So you, you have these characters with these really strong identities, even though they may not even be named characters. And then you have Jack's crew, which is just this whole bunch of misfits, which is fantastic. You've got Cotton, whose tongue has been cut out, and his, his, his parrot says this nonsense that they translate into whatever <laughs> they, they think is appropriate for the situation. Yeah, they had a lot of fun with that. I, I really love that in movies. Even... 
even outside of like a technical perspective, just as a consumer, it's so much fun to see them having fun, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like they didn't have to add any of that, but it just really adds to the world and it adds to the, the feeling of what's going on and just the fun. It's just a lot of fun. Cool. Well, now let's talk about the music. So do you have any, what do you have to say about the music here? <sighs> Chad. <laughs> Chad. I'm assuming that means you like it. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm so into it. Klaus Fidelt, honestly, and I know this is really bold, but I remember being a kid thinking that it was John Williams and I was wrong. Like <laughs> it's, it's iconic. It really it is. is. Like it, Klaus, he managed to just build this, you know it. As soon as you hear it, you know it. It's the cellos. And you know what? As a kid, I'm a cellist. And I started playing cello since I was younger. So this is also a really personal thing. <laughs> but I remember... That's really cool. Thank you. I remember hearing the whole thing and just immediately being obsessed. I mean, there's so many fantastic cello parts in this score for all of the movies. Down to that, you know, the da -da 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 -da. that's a cello solo. It's, it's a great use of the instrument and just of the... The feeling as a whole, it brings in this, um, the century and, and also the, the fun of Jack Sparrow. I mean, most of it is like Jack Sparrow's theme. You know what I mean? Like you first hear that, uh, that big overture whenever Jack is coming on his boat, right? Where he's the word, like you find out that the boat is sinking his introduction of the character. That's when you first hear that big score kind of introduced and it, it's super powerful and it makes all the fight scenes not just intense but fun you know what i mean right well i'm, I'm a horn player so you can imagine how i feel through a lot of the score as well <laughs> yes. and j just some trivia on the score itself you know zimmer was originally well actually alan silvestri was originally called to score the film but nothing was ever recorded before there were disagreements creatively and so han zimmer was asked but han zimmer was scoring the last samurai with tom cruise and so he said, hey, my boy Klaus will, will be over here and he'll, he'll compose the score for you. But then Zimmer ended up writing most of the, the themes themselves himself. So even though Klaus Badelt is the, the composer in charge on, and his name's on the soundtrack album, Hans Zimmer was very involved. He did produce the album, I believe. And then his whole team, Ramin Jawadi, James Dooley, Nick Glennie Smith. I'm reading names. I don't know these by memory. <laughs> Steve Jablonski, <laughs> Blake Neely, James McKee Smith, and Jeff Zanelli. All these people collaborated in making this score. And Jeff Zanelli is notable because he's the guy who just composed a score for Dead Man Tale No Tells. And Zimmer, of course, composed the scores officially for two through four. So it's this big collaborative effort, as Zim most of Zimmer's scores are, even though Bedelt's name is on the, the album. You're correct. I, I should have mentioned that. I mean, it, it, it's when you listen to it, it's true. It it feels like it's kind of obviously a, a Zimmer sort of inspired piece. But uh, all those other names, though, you know, I really didn't, um, I didn't know. I mean, you'd think that a lot of them are collaborative, but um, yeah, all I really know is it was Klaus and Zimmer on there. But it, it goes to show you, it takes a handful of people to create something. I think it's, I don't know, if it's just me, I think it's brilliant. I mean, what do you think? I think it's really fantastic. It's so iconic. It's, it's just unique. And I don't know, it's crazy, man. And there's so much that is established in this first film. Um, there's there's the pirate zombie theme that we first hear when we see Will in the ocean and they're approaching the flaming ship. And there's the he's a pirate theme or the romance theme that the first time we hear it is when Will and Elizabeth are first on screen together as adults. And you hear the, this romantic version of the theme playing in the background. And of course, that that builds into one of the main themes for the whole series. And you hear it in its full glory 
in the end credits. It's the track He's a Pirate on the album. And you've got Jack Theme 1, which is his first appearance as he's sailing in on the sinking ship. And you've got Jack <laughs> Theme 2, where, where he's trying to escape his handcuffs. And you've got another theme coming in when him and Will are fighting in the blacksmith shop. And there's just all these iconic themes that are introduced in his first film and developed throughout the rest of the series. And it's just amazing how influential the score is and how much it stands out in our culture. I think you could, you could take this music and play just about any track. And if somebody is even just vaguely familiar with the series, they're going to be able to identify it as Pirates of the Caribbean. And I, I just think that that's awesome. You know, I, I used to give Zimmer a lot of flack because a lot of his music sounded the same, but at least it all sounded like Pirates because Pirates is awesome. So I, I don't, I, I don't give him too much flack for that anymore. No, I'm the same. And, and, and you're right. You know what? Like even like haters of Pirates of the Caribbean, what, one of my, uh, another one of my good friends, uh, Natalie, she's not a huge fan of the series, but even she and I were having a discussion. It's like the music is so recognizable and it really is good. Like it's just catchy. It's, they've done something really great. It's, it's brilliant. Hans Zimmer, I'm the same. I used, I used to kind of be, a, I was a hater, but you know what? One of my good friends, I'm going to send you the video. Um, one of my good friends, Morgan, well, she's more of an acquaintance, but she's great. She She's uh, kind of a media analysis studies uh, sort of major. And she did this sort of walkthrough of Hans Zimmer and his recent works. And it's not as similar as you think. Like Hans Zimmer is doing, he thinks about the characters when he's writing these scores. You know what I mean? But uh, no, you're right. I used to give him a lot of flack, but th- I just wanted to say, like, recently I've been thinking about it. And also Morgan, my friend, helped me come to the realization that, yeah, it's a lot more than than you would think. He puts a lot of thought into into these these scores. But also, you know, when you're doing scores for like really huge Hollywood sort of films, you don't have a whole lot of freedom. I mean, these directors kind of know what they want already. They have it in mind, especially when they're doing like an action movie. You know, that's why like a lot of the action movies sound the same. It's kind of hard to get creative and do a, a character's theme like Jack, like Jack Sparrow's theme when he, when the director already knows what he wants. I don't know. I, I don't know what that's like, but I can imagine it's really difficult to work with a big studio with stuff like that. Yeah, I've definitely come around on Zimmer in the past few years because I think especially now he is the most innovative composer out there. He's always trying new things and pushing the envelope and just really pushing the boundaries of what people have done when scoring a film before. And he was definitely doing it before, but he wasn't doing that as much with the Pirates films. But with the Pirates films, he knew how to to score a film so that people would love the music. I mean, people know the music, people love the music, and he is definitely just a very successful, popular composer, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what did you say you played again? French horn. French horn. Oh, cool. Did you play that in college as well? I did. My major is music education. Wait, I knew that. Man, so you probably know a lot about this stuff, huh? Yes, I I, I collect a lot of film (laughs) scores. I I have probably 200 film scores at this point. I'm not entirely sure on that number, but I, I have a lot. Wow. Okay. We could, we could have like a whole other conversation on that. Anyways, you, 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 (laughs) Last thing in the music section, I just wanted to shout out to another podcast, uh, Sideshow Sound Radio, whose hosts I have had on the show. Wendell Jones talked about Monty Python and the Holy Grail with me, and Will Dodson talked about Lincoln with me. And they are releasing in the very near future a score guide on this movie score, where they will go track by track and talk about every single detail 
in the score. And I submitted a couple of things to them to put into the podcast as well. So if you're interested in the music and want to dive in a lot deeper than we did here, uh, definitely look for that in the next few days, sideshowsoundtheater.com. So let's go ahead and start bringing this home into the, the, the relevance and the theme section. What do you take away from this movie? What do I take away from it? You know, I think, um, and this is kind of cheesy nerd hour, but I just feel like, I don't know, a fantasy and, and this sort of, it's, it's like a far-fetched reality. I don't know. It's not really as taken seriously, I guess. And it, I think that this film is very much a part of that new age of, of fantasy in, in terms of fame. You know, like Lord of the Rings really brought it back, especially with like high fantasy. But I'm really proud that like this movie is totally a part of that movement. And a lot of what I write tends to be that kind of stuff. And like fantasy and sci-fi is considered kind of niche uh, genres. But I don't really think it is. I think that it's it's more widespread than you think. It's it's really enjoyable to have characters that can you can have empathy for them and they're living lives that are completely outside of anything you could ever experience. There's there's something so fantastic in that, you know? Yeah, they're they're characters that are experiencing humanity and experiencing life. And though their their living circumstances are different than ours, that doesn't mean we can't identify with them and take away lessons that they're learning and apply them to our own lives. And that's what's so great about sci-fi and about fantasy and about these these widely varied worlds that, like you said, we would never experience. But that doesn't mean the humanity is absent from them. And, you know, just to uh, bring it back really quick to... Um characters like Elizabeth and Anna Maria. As a little girl, you know, I grew up with a lot of Disney movies that I loved and adored, but it wasn't until recently where they really started to make the female characters kind of, uh, I don't want to say like stronger, but just more active in their own narratives. And that's just, I can't even really begin to describe how enjoyable it is to watch. You don't think that when you're raised with this sort of this sort of narrative that we have in Hollywood, you don't really think about it very often. But when you're a little girl and you see that, it really resonates. So I was like, man, I do want adventure. I do want to take charge. It's really encouraging. It's a lot of fun. I don't know. Stay feminist. Yeah, we were talking about Mad Max Fury Road last week and how great a character Furiosa is. But it's nice to hear from a woman how much a strong woman character actually means. So I'm glad you're on to, to talk about Elizabeth specifically and Anna Maria and the, these strong female characters who are a lot more active in their story and less passive than a lot of female characters of the past have been. And it's one of those things where I, I love that Mad Max episode, by the way, I listened to that Thank uh, you. a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's true. Like, the thing is, I think it's it's a fear because it hasn't been done all too much in in the past, of course, that's so natural. But uh it's just time to not be afraid of it so much. And I, I love when, like, you know, strong women get together and they're like, oh, we're going to direct this movie. It's going to be by females, for females. But it's also great when you don't even have to think about it too much. Like, they made this movie and they wrote Elizabeth and they were just like, I don't even think they sat down and, and said, like, oh, she's going to be a strong female. They were just like, here's this dope character. She's going to do what she's got to do. You know, she just so happens to be a woman and she's dealing with her circumstances and she's doing her shit. I, and I just think that's so cool. Whenever that happens, it's just it feels normalized. You know what I mean? Like it, it feels like this is a normal thing. And sure, it's hard for her. Yeah, she's expected to get married, but it doesn't really impede her story all too much. And in the end, she uses it to her advantage. That sort of stuff is I, I got to say, it's, it's really exciting to watch as a woman. That's awesome. 
Now, another sort of takeaway for me, what th- there's this idea of what piracy means within the context of the film, right? Where most people in the world, including Will and Norrington, and even Elizabeth to a certain extent, she's fascinated by the world, but she recognizes that piracy is an evil act reserved to the worst men in the world. And over the course of the film, they grow to learn that piracy is as good or as bad as the intentions behind it. And you look at Jack, a character like Jack, who, who's not a pirate to be a pirate, to, to pillage and to plunder and to kill and to rape and all this kind of stuff. He's a pirate to be his own boss, to, to have freedom, to go wherever, whenever. And there's this moment at the end of the film when he's gotten back on the Black Pearl and he's now officially the captain of the Black Pearl once again. And he just has this moment where he's sort of like lovingly holding the, the, the helm and wow, I, I'm here. This is where I belong. It's that moment for him. And it, it's, it's an awesome moment. And that, that just shows what piracy means to him. It's not, it's not an evil act. It's an act of freedom. And I think that's really cool. There, there's a difference between Jack being a pirate and Barbosa being a pirate. And you know, when uh, Commodore Norrington flips over his wrist and he sees that East India Trading Company tattoo, it shows that sort of that contrast between what life are you going to choose? Like, sure, this one has its consequences, but it, is it that much worse than ha- having to follow these strict, strict set of rules and not being paid all that much? And, it, you know, it, it's it's those that classic case of government versus rebellion. <laughs> It's it's a theme that comes up in many of the things we watch, especially nowadays with, I think, young adult fiction, uh, you know, like the Hunger Games and stuff like that. And even in like Skyrim, I, I was playing it recently, and you have like the Stormcloaks versus the the Imperial uh, RV. And it's like the Stormcloaks are kind of racist and like they have a bunch of bad things going on. But the Imperial uh, Army is also just run by this all-powerful dictator. So what are you going to choose, you know? Exactly. And I've sort of written that down as the the idea of being right by the law or the, the code when it comes to the pirates versus doing what's actually right, like what's morally right, the, the right thing to do rather than the law. You've got Will helping Jack to escape and you've got Norrington allowing Jack a head start because he rescued Elizabeth and helped to defeat Barbosa. You've got Gibbs and the crew returning for Jack, despite the code, just because the code says specifically those who fall behind get left behind doesn't mean they're going to leave a friend behind. And that, that's something they have to learn. But it's this idea, again, of doing the right thing versus doing what is necessarily the right thing by law or the code. And the governor has this amazing quote at the end of the film once Jack has uh, fallen over the railing and is swimming back to the Black Pearl. And he says, perhaps on the rare occasion, pursuing the right course demands an act of piracy. The piracy itself can be the right course. And uh, that, that sums <laughs> it up. I knew you were going to say that. Sums up the whole thing. No, you're absolutely right. I don't know if I could add anything. <laughs> <laughs> any, any final thoughts on the movie as a whole? It's funny. It's one of those things where when I was growing up, I I wasn't super vocal about it. I was also a really shy kid, you know, like I didn't even admit that I was obsessed with Harry Potter until like one of my friends did. And then I found out it was like a cultural phenomenon and I felt okay with talking about it. With Pirates of the Caribbean, it's kind of the same thing. Like I haven't really felt super, I don't know what it is, but I haven't talked about it with too many people. Like I said, like one of my best friends, we just discovered like a couple weeks ago that this was both of our like inspirations into a creative future. And 
I don't know what it is. It's funny to think about it. It's just a fantastic movie. It's really well written. It's really just well developed the way everything came together. And the fact that they didn't expect that it was going to be a mass success just boggles my mind. And I think it is a great product of smart collaboration and real thought. You know, it took them years to build this script into what they wanted it to be before they really went for it. Because you're right, it, the fact that theme park movies tended to tank made a difference. They were debating on whether or not this should be like a straight to DVD movie. That blows my mind. That's insane. Like, and and to like, I guess, cheesy piggyback off of that. It's it's an inspiration for me to talk more about the things that I love and to just be confident in being nerdy. Because chances are, if you love something that much, somebody else is gonna love it too. Exactly. And that's why I don't believe in like guilty pleasures. There, there's things you like and there's things you don't. There's You shouldn't feel guilty for liking anything. And so talking about the things we love is, again, one of the focuses of Cinescope. And I'm so glad that you were able to come on and talk about the thing you love with me. I was thinking of talking about some shit like The Graduate, which is I, but I don't really want to talk about <laughs> that much because they forced me to talk about it. Film and school. Dustin Hoffman, who needs him. We all know it's good. We don't need to talk about it. <laughs> but yeah, it's guilty pleasures are not a thing. Pleasures are a thing. And I'm really stoked you had me on your podcast. Thank you so much. I am glad to have you on as well. Thank you. And I think that is the end of the official 43rd episode of Cinescope. We did it. We did it. <laughs> hey, we finally met. <laughs> we did. Uh, contact for the show facebook.com slash cinescope podcast and at cinescope pod on twitter please remember to rate review and subscribe on itunes and remember if you rate and review on itunes or if you share the show on facebook or on twitter and tag us you will be entered into the giveaway where there will be three winners one grand prize winner who will win two movies that we've talked about and then two second place or second and third place winners who will win one movie a piece that we've talked about. So make sure you do that. You have until episode 52. So you still got a good long while. And if you've got feedback or ideas, you can email me at the at gmail.com. And you can use that email to contact me regarding co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love, not a guilty pleasure, just something that you enjoy that you want to talk about, let me know and we'll get you on. Sarah, where can people find you online? Find your stuff, find your work, find your voice, all that kind of stuff. Ah, well, Still working on the website, but people can find me on Twitter at Sarah D. Parrish. Uh, it's pretty easy, and Parrish is spelled with two R's, and Sarah is spelled with an H. Um, my website is, uh, you know what? I'm not even going to put it because I'm working on it. Okay. If you want Sarah, go to Twitter. Yeah, just go to Twitter. You know, working on my future, it's fine. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And on Facebook.com slash Chad or yeah, Chad.hopkins. <laughs> and all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at the website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thank you once again, Sarah. It's been awesome having you on. Thank you, Chad. I'm so glad to have talked to you. Me too. And thank you everyone for listening to episode 43. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 44. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.